This episode is brought to you by BitMEX, the OG crypto exchange that is back and better than ever. You'll hear more about BitMEX later in the show. Hey everyone, quick reminder, nothing said on Empire is a recommendation to buy or sell securities or tokens. This podcast is for informational purposes only and any views expressed by anyone on the show are solely our opinions, not financial advice. Santiago and I and our guests may hold positions in the companies, funds, or projects discussed. Now, let's get into the show. All right, everyone. Uh, we have a really amazing episode coming at you. We got Brian Pellegrino, co-founder and CEO of Layer Zero. Uh, hilarious. Before we were uh, before we hit record, we were just talking all about. It's like, what did you do? You know, after school, you're from New Hampshire. Uh, he's talking about how he traveled, uh, saw like 80 countries in eight years playing professional poker, then built a daily fantasy sports app, sold that, uh, then wrote some machine learning uh, models, sold them to some sports teams, uh, and has just built an incredible wealth of knowledge in the AI and machine learning space, built several companies, sold them, and now he's taking on his biggest challenge yet, uh, trying to create interoperability uh, and just solve one of the biggest issues in crypto with Layer Zero. They're coming off a massive round, $135 million round, co-led by Sequoia, FTX and Andreessen, uh, some other folks that invested Coinbase Ventures, PayPal Ventures, Tiger, Uniswap, and per usual, our friend, Mr. Santi. So, uh, Brian, welcome to Empire. Thanks so much for having me. Welcome, Brian. Welcome, welcome. Brian, I want to just start really, really big. So you've built all these companies, uh, brilliant, like machine uh, in the machine learning space. You've built these great AI models. You've built a daily fantasy sports app. You could make a whole living, and you did, playing poker. Why, of all of the companies in the world, and why, actually, maybe I should just frame it as like the challenges and the problems to tackle, why is bridging and like interoperability of crypto, of, of different layer ones, the biggest problem that you want to tackle and spend the next... 10, 20 years working on? Yeah, I mean, ultimately, I think I, I think about this a little bit different than most in that most people like want to be a founder. They want to start a company. They want to build something. Like I've, I've streamed my, my co-founder from my prior company was exactly like that. It was just like the only thing you wanted. I've always just wanted to like solve hard, hard problems. Like that's, I, I just kind of have been down this path and like things are interesting to me and I try to solve it. And like, that's like, that's what led us here. Uh, you know, this didn't start from, this is the thing we're going to tackle. This started from BSC launched and every single day I was getting spammed with messages like Binance Smart Chain has more traffic than all of Ethereum and like all this volume and everything. And it was like, you know, the first time anything happened meaningfully outside of Ethereum at all. And we're like, okay, that's interesting. And kind of like, as technologists, the way we think about things is just like toy models. We're like, we just make this little game and we'll just play it across both chains and just like prove out this example. Started to build this and very quickly realized like there isn't any way to like make these contracts do something without just like having a centralized server like dictating things. And we're like, well, but bridging works. Like, how does it work? And we actually looked into uh, all the other bridges and we're like, whoa, like we would not trust any money to any of these existing models. Like this is insane. Um, so we, I started, we're like, okay, well, let's just build a better bridge. And we started building a bridge early, like, um, this was actually the earliest version of Stargate. Um, and as soon as we started building that, we had to, we were like inventing our own transport layer to again, make the communication function and very quickly just realize that like, oh, this thing is actually like this generalizable piece is, is the problem to be solving. Um, and then we just went, went through the normal routine of like, try to break it, try to harden it, try to break it, try to harden it and just build a system. Like what is, what is the system that like, would be the easiest, like what would we want to build on top of and what would do we want to basically provide to the consumer or like using our applications that are building on top of this thing? A lot of what I'd like to ask founders when I meet them, and I think I asked you this question early on is, why hasn't it been built before? And so why don't you just start there? Yeah, uh, I think one, it's not like interoperability, like uh, communication between chains is not necessarily a new problem, right? Like Cosmos tried to do this in 2017. So it's been like five years. Um, but if you go back 18 months in time, it literally like wasn't like it was not very clear at all that it would be a very multi-chain future. Like people were not thinking along those lines. When we started this problem, uh, again, Binance Smart Chain had like just launched. It was the only thing where anything was happening. And so we started building because we loved building and we wanted to like build an awesome solution. And in those 14 months, like the world kind of coalesced around like 
this being the kind of holy grail problem to solve because all these other layer ones finally started like coming into fruition. So I, I actually don't think it's that nobody has tried to solve it before. I think that it, it wasn't obvious that this should be solved. And we happened to start working on it way before anybody else did and start like really making something uh, that is meaningfully usable way before anybody else did. Yeah, absolutely. And maybe for the general audience, like, can you describe like the problem that you saw and, and, and what is it that you are solving and from a user experience, like, why does it matter? Yep. hundred percent. So what we saw was one, again, there weren't, we wanted a game, right? We wanted to build a game that passed messages back and forth. Something was happening on each of these chains and it was affecting something on the other chain. And there was no way to do that. So there were bridges. People, every before we announced, every single project only cared about value transfer. That's all you ever had. You had a, a user with a bag of money who's going to walk over a bridge and like land in some other, you know, land and, uh, you know, go around and use the money over there. And we decided very early on that value transfer is just a special case of generic messaging. Like what you really want, like think internet, you really want to solve for like packets, right? You want to solve for generic messaging, arbitrary contract invocation, the ability to just do anything at the contract level. And if you're sending value, amazing, you can do that too. Uh, and so I think that was one way that like we meaningfully approached it differently than anybody else at the time um, was that we weren't focused on value transfer at all. It was purely solving like the most extensible primitive. And then all the other things we built around this were for consumer experience. So like, how do you make it like the thing that I've been thinking about for a very long time since starting this is like, how do you make it so you have this like Robin Hood of crypto style app? How do you make it so a user can have a wallet that's connected to all these RPCs and they can go asset A on chain X, asset B on chain Y, this farm with 20% APY to that farm with 60% APY, NFTs, all of this without ever needing to know the underlying chain, connect to this, use this RPC, the underlying gas asset. How do we abstract all of that away from them? And so that was one of the really big components in that like you can execute this really complex contract flow of like six calls on two different chains and the user just signs once. One transaction on the source chain, a whole flow gets executed. User never thinks about destination gas. They don't need both ETH and Sol or to claim it on the other end. Uh, all of that gets abstracted away. And I think we're moving. Uh, there's a bunch of things that like we haven't talked about. Like we're moving even more and more towards that direction. Uh, giving the application developers the ability to just totally abstract that away from the user side of things. You mentioned like messaging, which seems like so core to what you're actually building here. When I think about what the internet did, it, ma it made it so that you could send messaging and information in a peer-to-peer -peer manner. The thing that crypto does is it makes it so you can send like uh, money and value in a peer-to-peer -peer manner for the first time. When I look at layer zero and I'm like, oh, you can send messaging now in this peer-to-peer -peer manner. My, the first thought that comes to my head is we already did this. We've got like SMT, we have the protocols. It's SMTP and HTTP. So like, why does, why is this a problem that needs to be solved again? Yeah, because you, yeah, you have that in the internet. You don't have that on contracts. You have this contract that's sitting on Ethereum, right? So a great example of this might be SushiSwap. SushiSwap was on like 14 chains, but none of them could communicate together. You couldn't, so there were just independent silos that may have well been you know, completely different projects. They couldn't send a message to like do a swap here and do a swap there, affect a piece of state here and also synchronize that state on other chains. So you have things, you know, it can be something very simple like casting a vote in governance. Uh, you have your project lives on multiple chains. You want to be able to govern from all of them, not just need to, hey, if you want to participate in governance, bridge your tokens back and do it from Ethereum or do it from whatever chain. And then you have things like, games are doing things now. I had somebody pitch me the other day, which I thought was very interesting. Like their game's going to run on an avalanche subnet, but you have like a Twitter profile picture, like the hexagon that lives on Polygon or Ethereum. And you do something on the subnet that's very high, you know, a thousand clicks, 200 hours. And when you do, you kill a boss, you earn an achievement, you do whatever. It sends a message, mutates the metadata of your NFT on Polygon or Ethereum, and that automatically syncs to your Twitter profile picture, which like updates. So you like have a crown now and without needing to like do anything or say anything, right? So it's actually like think state share, think um, the other thing that's like pretty exciting to me is, is application design being able to change. So everything designed right now is like fairly monolithic in that, you know, early internet, we would write a... Uh, an application and you'd like host it on your computer in your house. Or if you're lucky, you'd like put that server in a data center. Uh, but everything was like just all the code was just on that one server. And you look at like modern application design 
and everything is microservices. You have things that are hyper-optimized for compute and for storage and for all of these different things. And so now, if you have a seamless messaging layer, you can almost treat chains as microservices. So now you can have an application that can do something that could never do before. Like it's way too expensive to store all this stuff on Ethereum, but now we can put all of our storage on Arweave or IPFS. And then you can take that and bundle it up and do this really complex computation on Solana and then roll the result back to Ethereum, right? And so... I don't think anybody else is excited about this yet. And I'm not sure that will play out that way, but I'm excited about like seeing the evolution of this and like having the potential to really change the way that applications design or like what that can look like, the complexity of applications that can be built. And so I think there's a lot of cool unlocks at, at pure messaging layer. We had a Ilya from Near earlier uh, on, and I think I think we touched on microservices. This was huge for the internet. This the, the, like a, a lot of SaaS software investors out there would probably recognize like the thing that allowed uh, you to stream video and and run all these super intensive applications like Netflix on the fly is microservices and that like architectural redesign of a lot of web applications. The thing that I I want to get your take on is. It's all. I always come back to yes, architecturally, like you can borrow a lot of these concepts, but it comes back to when you're making these state transitions, like you got to make sure that like what happens in one chain, like Ethereum is super secure, but another chain may not be as secure, and and what like how do you work around that? Which to me is always you're only as strong as your weakest link, and so when you're connecting a lot of these different chains, how do you kind of solve that issue um, of security? Okay, so this will take. A, ho- hopefully, you guys don't mind me going on a, a slightly longer rant. We, we like going down rabbit holes here. <laughs> All right, so I think it's important to understand the way that most systems work right now. So the way most systems work is you have two chains and they want to talk to each other. And kind of the way that people solve this is you'll write a transaction here. You will put some consensus mechanism in the middle that will come to consensus as to like the validity of the source. So we'll say, okay, that's a valid transaction, and then it will write a transaction out to the destination chain. And the problem with that construct is that that middle chain is ultimately the arbiter of everything. It holds the parameterization of security. It writes all transactions out if that consensus mechanism is ever broken. Um, Doesn't matter if it's for a short period. Doesn't matter at all. Um, It has the ability to arbitrarily write messages to every application on every paired chain. So breaking that basically wins everything. Catastrophic risk plus unlimited contagion. Um, So like that itself is scary, right? You have this mechanism that controls 5 billion. And okay, maybe that's great. Maybe that's acceptable. But then like Uniswap opts in and it's 20 and Aave opts in and it's 50. And basically every new application opting in is creating this adversarial incentive for every prior application, unless the bond in the system is growing like non-linearly, which has never, ever been the case and would be super capital inefficient. So, you know, they're making it less and less secure because there's like a larger and larger honeypot at risk. Um, And so that was like, like as a principle, that was a system that we didn't think could ever scale viably long-term. You're, you know, ultimately the idea, you're going to be collecting, connecting hundreds of billions, if not more in value across these chains, plus contagion effect. Um, And it's extremely unlikely that you're going to have this chain that sits in the middle that has bonded, you know, a trillion dollars basically in value um, to, to have like economic security. So the construct that we went with is a couple of things. One is, you're doing this ad hoc block validation. So you're basically taking this block and validating the other side. You split up this block into two pieces, uh, block header, which has a receipts route, transaction proof, so MPT for EVMs, combine it and do the walk directly on the destination chain. But how it's being split up is being split up by these two parties that we call oracles and relayers. A little bit of a misnomer because people always think traditional oracles or relayer networks like they work now. But really, you can just think of these as two arbitrary systems. An oracle is passing a block header and a relayer is passing a uh, transaction proof. And so the difference here is that there is no broad consensus that sits in the middle. There's no like civil to attack. There's no round robin. Every application opts into exactly the Oracle and Relayer component that they want. And there's a bunch of reasons for this. One is just a sharding of risk. So you can take some broad system. um, I don't know, pick your favorite Oracle and say it costs $2 billion to attack. And maybe you win like $5 billion if you attack it. Uh, So eventually, like at some point in time, this will probably happen and this thing will get attacked and you'll win $5 billion. Um, or there'll be $5 billion in damages, I should say. But now you can take this Oracle and it still costs $2 billion to attack, but you can shard it by splitting up a bunch of relayers. And now 
even if that Oracle is attacked, even if it's in malicious collusion with Relayer A, you're only winning this very narrow band of risk of exactly applications using that Oracle and Relayer A. So anybody using Relayer B through Z, anybody relaying their own transactions, anybody using any other Oracle, stay completely unaffected. So what this means is that the price to attack the Oracle hasn't changed at all, and yet you're only winning 130th or 130th of overall system of risk. So like the effective attack on the Oracle now has gone up exponentially. But more than that is the ability, you know, small applications, whatever, your normal mid-size application, they're going to say, using Chainlink as my Oracle and Coinbase as my relayer, like I'm fine externalizing or pricing the risk that both Chainlink and Coinbase will not be simultaneously broken and malicious and colluding against me. Like many will say, okay, there's a price that I'll pay for basically not needing to deal with the infrastructure side of things. But you're a huge application, your Curve, your Aave, your whoever. Uh, now you have the ability to run one of these components yourself. And if you run one of those components, if you run your own relayer, even if 100% of other network participants are malicious. There is nothing that anybody else can do to affect your security. There is no like takeover of consensus. Unless you're colluding against with the Oracle against yourself, which obviously you would not do. There's nothing that anybody else can do to affect you. So it gives also, this is part of the thing that I think is really important, is moving this parameterization up to the application layer, where now the applications, there's defaults if they don't want to think about it, but now the applications basically can create this line of, you know, there's a direct correlation between cost and security, period, right? If you could have better security for cheaper costs, like, of course, everybody would select it. So you have this, this like Pareto frontier of cost and security, and you can create these structures. Maybe it's Chainlink and Coinbase. Maybe it's 100 nodes. Maybe it's 10,000 nodes. Maybe it's a bonded node system. You can create this line, and applications can basically choose where they want to live on that line of cost and security. And part of the reason for this is something I thought was so insane about the current structure in that all of the parameterization lives at the technology layer and not at the application layer was like, the example I always give is you have two things that are happening. One is like a game that wants to verify on chain B that it owns like a copper sword on chain A. And the other is somebody trying to send $500 million. Like in what world should they be opting into the same set of security parameters? Either somebody is wildly overpaying or somebody is not getting nearly enough security, right? There's like somebody is so far out of bounds and probably both are so far out of bounds. Um, and so like, there just isn't a world, I think, where parameterization lives at the technology layer. So all of that gets moved up the stack. And I think like, we really focus on modular, uh, like application design, they should have the ability to choose this construct of security, we have the ability to put out new validation libraries. So like a new ZKP, like state proof generation speeds up a thousand X tomorrow. Fantastic. We can take that, put in a validation library. Anybody who wants to use it can now point to the state proof generation like ZKP validation. Totally fine. Uh, like it's meant to be modular. This thing that I'm even describing to you, like the oracles and relayers, that's just one thing. That's our ultra light node. That's one single validation library in layer zero of which there can be thousands because we are not at all convinced that any validation mechanism that exists today will be the de facto validation mechanism five or 10 years from now. We built with that in mind. We're just like, we're going to build something we think is better and more modular in terms of security and application choice than anything today. But uh, we're not going to build it in such a way that like, this is the system. And we're going to tell you like, yeah, this is only system overuse. It'll scale. It'll be perfectly secure. No. Uh, mm -hmm. For us, like we're very on top of security research. And like the goal is to just progressively get better and give applications choice always. So in this in this world where there is more choice um, for the application, how how do you envision that actually playing out? So going back to your example, if you want to send five hundred million dollars, and also if, on the gaming side, if you want to send like a, a trivial amount, like a sword or whatever, who is actually making that informed decision of where to where in that continuum? Is there a market? Is there the application that is making that? How, how do you how do you work this out? The application can make it because they can run one of their own. But I think what's most likely, like almost certainly, there'll be some narrow parameterization. There'll be like five broad parameterizations where like 95% of applications fall within, right? And it's basically on this curve, you want to live here, 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 here. And basically, there'll be a measure of how much risk is in basically each of these bands. And so people might want to say, I'm going to take the same band, but opt for like a different relay or a different Oracle. So broadly, the same construct, broadly, the same kind of system or parameterization. 
Um, but at the end of the day, like I think most people will live on default uh, or just choose one of like these presets that everybody else is using because that's way easier than like needing to choose yourself. But it also opens up a world where, I don't know, Ave wants to make, again, Ave wants to make like their own security around this and they create like an Ave net relayer and all of the Ave users can like bond Ave into this relayer and basically perform this action and like gives applications the choice to like play a role in their own application security and like doing all of this, right? And I think that's really important uh, as well. So that's really interesting because now if, if you're Ave, you're competing against Compound and you're competing against other protocols, Jet and some other protocols out there, money markets. So what you're saying is, then it is sort of like a very interesting go-to-market where these applications that may want to retain users, may want to attract users, are going to are going to start, you know, offering these services and being built on top of you guys to, you know, maybe give. It's like the analogy would be like Verizon giving everyone five G for much cheaper than what AT and T gives. If AT and T only gives you three G, like it's a bad example, but I'm I'm I think that this is where applications own the the customer relationship. Of course, yeah. I mean, uh, like they will unlock both lend and borrow like in, in which is one of like the broad use cases I'm most excited for. And we can talk about why I think wrapped assets suck. And like, that is clearly the future. Um, but then also like, obviously if they make this relayer network, well, sure, they're using it, but also like a huge number of other applications are going to say they're using it like it's good enough for me, basically, and we'll default to that rather than using like this prior construct. Um, so I think there is this, this huge unlock that allows like tokenomics that they can kind of mix in. Like there's a bunch of things they can do that are like broadly good for Ave and incentivize Ave users. And uh, yeah. From a validation standpoint, th- there is still some assumption there that you're making that people are validating correctly. Um, and there's a robust validator set. I'm making that assumption. Is that true? So again, it really depends on the system. So you can have a system that's four chain esque and everybody bonds 150% and like that's a deal. You bond bonded value into the system and like you get slashed if you don't validate correctly. You can, you know, there's, there's, for us, it was very intentional to basically not have, like, we'll publish some reference implementations for how we think. We'll publish something to make it very easy to, like, make your multi-sig in Oracle or Relayer. We'll, like, we'll do things to make it easier for people, but broadly, the only, like, an Oracle is just any system whose output is a block header and a relayer is any system whose output is a transaction proof. And what that looks like can be anything, any, any take any crypto economic system that exists today and apply it. No, that makes sense. And in terms of um, like, what do you see as the, so you just, just for, for listeners, like just the, the context is you, you recently launched um, and what are some of the maybe what has been kind of your learnings so far since you launched and and where i'm going with this question is kind of where do you see the biggest like security like attack vectors for for a network like this yeah so it was funny i mean we launched and like within two weeks we have four billion dollars of tvl and stargate which was like the fastest growing DeFi application of all time and naturally like we said a million people trying to attack it all the time, right? So we're just sitting there watching like attacks come in from every single possible anger, all these external contracts attacking uh, the Stargate on the other side, trying to forge messages, trying to do all of these things. So there's like a couple things. Wait, that we wait, wait a minute, wait a minute. Let's just pause there because I want people to conceptualize how adversarial crypto is. Like, of course, like it's like how stressful is that as a builder? Like you're sitting there. I saw pictures of you guys in the in, in, like the teams just like deploying <laughs> it, and all of a sudden. You know, you would think that the world is a nice place, right? Which is like, great. We just launched this, what is a novel tech. And all of a sudden you have all these trolls, like immediately try to like hack this system. Like, like what does that mean about like just humanity in general? You know what I mean? But I don't think, I don't think it's trolls. I think it's like when you have a, when and any sort of market, like when there's an inefficient market, like a hedge fund's job is to go in and basically attack like, that exploit market. It, yeah. that, that's a very friendly market. way to, to, to describe that. I, I think this is not activism <laughs> investing. Yeah, I think this is, we want to, we want to take $4 billion and run away. That's fair. That's fair. But Brian, like to tell us about as a builder, like what do you feel when you see that? So I think broadly, like, like humans on a broad scale, not individuals, but like humans on a broad scale will always just do whatever is like, if you give them an incentive, the incentive is going to get taken, period. It doesn't matter what it is, right? There isn't, you can't put money in a contract and expose the keys and hope somebody doesn't take it. So like the thing about crypto is it's either like a hundred percent perfect or it's totally broken. Like there is no in between. If there's a flaw, like it's going to be exploited. And so for us broadly, like we, 
you understand the week of launch, we stayed up for five days straight to launch layer zero on Tuesday, Stargate on Thursday. We were rotating like two hour naps on these bean bags in the office. Michelle from Sequoia was just like there, just like trying to support us. Um, it was literal madness. And then post launch, we just saw TVL just start going like this. And then we started to see these attacks coming in. And obviously like we <clears throat> did every possible thing that we felt we could do from security ahead of time. And even still, there's like, like you're just terrified, right? Because like, you don't know. And we see these and we're like, we're inspecting everything that's coming through uh, as it's happening. And we're like, okay, like that shouldn't work. Like, nope, this is fine, fine. Uh, and just like checking, going back, checking everything. And then you have, you know, somebody funds a wallet through Tornado Cash and somebody reached out to us and says, hey, like this guy just funded from Tornado Cash is doing this weird thing. Like, okay, check that. Um, and so, you know, fortunately, everything totally fine. And then we got into like, okay, like how long can we do this for and what can we do to basically change it? And so like, there were three broad things that we did after that, that we spent like, we expected to spend the next three weeks, like just like integrations, new networks, everything. And we literally just spent the next three weeks on security, nothing else, which is like not what we thought we were going to be doing. Um, you know, basically the three big things we did is one, we made this thing. So at the relayer level, we made this thing we called the dome, which was just like no external contract can ever send a message to the UA on the other side. So if you're not coming from Stargate, you will not talk to Stargate on the other side. So like, that's one thing. Step two is this thing we call pre-crime, which is basically you take a message and it's going to the other side. And before you deliver it, you take it, fork everything, run it locally, and verify that it meets these invariants. Your invariants can be very simple, like solvency, et cetera. Uh, and then if it does, then you get to pass it. And if it doesn't, basically, you know it's an attack and you discard it. Does that introduce latency in the system? or it, Like basically zero, effectively okay. zero. Um, yeah. Uh, and so now you have this message coming through and before you, you know, hacker would be clever and he'd like stuff a bunch of bytes and try to trick the message, uh, the contract on the other side to say, yeah, you know, I, look, it's verified. I put $20 million over there. Give me $20 million over here. And now this thing checks and says, Hey, we're going to give $20 million over here. Does the system still add up? So things like Ronin and a bunch of the other hacks, right? Using something like this would have just been like, of course, we're not going to give the hacker all the money because like there isn't money on the other side to confirm it. Um, and so it allows application to do that. And that actually we thought was like, we were just like, hey, we, like we need to do this thing. This seems like this. This will protect everything and like ensure what we need. And then we talked to a bunch of these like white hat hacker groups, and they're like, this is the most exciting thing that we've seen in like a decade. Like in this, like oh, yeah, this is incredibly cool. Um, and so like we didn't realize as we we're building it, like how cool it is, but people are super super excited about it. And then we're we're working into like how all applications basically can set these invariants and like roll it in the relayer set. And then the third thing is we put up. Uh, the two largest bug bounties ever, like 15 million for both Stargate and Layer Zero. Um, but no, it was like, it was terrifying. Like none of us were sleeping. We're still all on constant pager duty. Um, yeah, it's a, you, you will never get over that in crypto. Like I'm sure eventually you learn to sleep okay, but like it never goes away. Yeah, I think th there is no such thing as going fast and breaking things. It, talk, talk to us about your journey in building this. Um, I, I heard you say earlier that, you know, I think my estimation is a lot of founders in this space see an opportunity to go quickly. You'll try to build fast because it's a super competitive Web3 world. Code is open source. Anyone can fork you. Like, you're always on the edge. But there's also what you're saying is like, like most people kind of don't think about security and like stuff breaks and it breaks. Like, you're done. Like, it's really hard to recover. Users get hurt. But how do you make that trade off and, and maybe tell us from your experience, like how has this journey been for you to get to where you are now? Yeah. Uh, I mean, for us, again, we didn't approach this from the stance of like, we want to build a huge company. We're going to do this big thing. Like it's me. It's two of my closest friends in the world started our first company together, sold it, did academic research together. I've known them 16 plus years. We were just building a thing that we thought were cool. So actually through all of our fundraisers, we've never had a pitch deck. We've never gone out and been actively raising, right? We were building something we thought were cool, was cool. We were excited about it. We were showing it just to people around like this thing we think is pretty awesome. And then we got preempted. Our last round, we got preempted like six times. So for us, we haven't approached it from like this builder. So we built 100% in stealth before we announced to the world. Like the protocol was done. The paper was done in May. The protocol was basically totally written by the time we did the last one. And then uh, since then, everything was just 
making it better. Everything like I think we cut gas by a factor of three. Uh, every you know we did twelve different security audits from all these firms. We spent like a million and a half dollars on audits. Uh, we have an entire team auditing ourselves. Everything was just like okay, we built this thing. It works. We've used it. We're playing with it on testnet. We built contracts. We published this demo showing like Uniswap v2 forks doing this native to native swap, uh, composing Stargate in the middle, which was something we were super excited about. And then everything like we wanted to launch then. We thought we were going to launch last October. Um, and it was just like, not good enough, not good enough, not good enough. Um, and so everything from then till now, has just been that. And like we launched ultimately when we thought it was good enough. And like we saw us losing like slowly other people like applications who were excited about building on us were building on other people because like they had to launch. Like what are they going to do? They're not going to wait six more months for this. Um, And so like every day basically we had that like thrown in our face of like, you're losing market share, you're losing market share, you're losing market share, uh, or like the competitive edge of being early is going away. Uh, but it was just like, you have to get through and do it right. And ideally the delta of like what you're offering and how much better it is than everything else, like then fixes all of that. Um, mm. So like from, from our mindset, it was, it was just that like, yes, we absolutely like as a team collectively, we're 27 now uh, the entire time we've been in Bahamas, like we, basically are in the office seven days a week, basically 9am to 10 and 11pm. Like nobody's, it's not enforced. We have no set hours. We have no, it's just like as a culture, we're there because we very much recognize we need to run faster than everybody else, like to win, like period. Um, but uh, you still have to do it right. So yeah, my, my submission is that I think you want to build a really strong foundation and that might take a long time. But once you have that, it allows you to go much, much faster than perhaps other people that might just die along the way. Um, you know, like wormhole, very close. Um, I am curious before we get to, I, I want to get your take on like, what does this really unlock for the space? What does it actually mean from a user perspective, from like a scalability perspective and adoption and use cases? But before we get there, um, just on, on the fundraising itself, um, I think I can't think of a more stacked group of like just traditional investors. Like this is, I think it was, correct me here, but like this is Sequoia and PayPal, like folks that have never even like ever considered or have been skeptical on the fence of maybe making a decision of who to partner with because they see the spaces early. How are those conversations? And and maybe just give us some insight into like wh- why why was it you guys that they finally decided to like just jump on and really like make a very explicit bet on, on, on a piece of tech? Yeah, I mean, ultimately, I think it's a probably, you know, probably a question best for them. Um, but I will say like most of these groups got it pretty early on. Like, uh, impressingly so and paypal was similar like paypal you know this was a big pivot for them this is the first time they've ever invested in a token ever uh they had to change the structure of paypal to be able to hold tokens they had to figure out how to do all of these things but like they were willing to go through that process with us and like make that bet and it was like pretty apparent early on that like they wanted to go through the work to make it happen we interrupt your programming with a special announcement. Empire has a new sponsor. Santi and I are very excited to welcome BitMEX. That is right. BitMEX is back. The exchange we all know and love is back and better than ever. We're going to be dropping a couple updates on BitMEX over the next couple of months. This first one is a big one. Coming soon, BitMEX is rolling out their spot exchange and they're giving away $500,000 in Bitcoin to new users. That's right. Listening to Empire has got the alpha. Santi and I got you $500,000 in Bitcoin going to new users. For the OGs, I don't think I need to tell you why you need to use BitMEX. It's a love of the game kind of thing. You respect crypto, you use BitMEX. For those newer to the uh, industry, BitMEX has a long and great history of innovation since their launch in 2014. They created perps and a whole lot more. Now they're back, they're better than ever, they're making waves. So what do you need to do? Go sign up for the BitMEX Spot Exchange for a chance to win some of the $500,000 in Bitcoin that BitMEX is giving away. B-I-T-M-E-X, B-I-T-M-E-X.com. That's BitMEX.com. Go make it happen. Now let's get back to the show. That is a good segue into like what I want to go next, which is what does that mean? What does this mean for crypto? Uh, we've seen all these competing L1s. There's a lot of maximalism, but ultimately, I think like to your point around Binance Smart Chain, just users are willing to go where where the best service is is at without maybe necessarily appreciating all the really technical nuances. So what does this really mean for the space? And, and how do you see this kind of impacting in the next six, kind of 12 months, two years, three years down the line? 
Yeah, there's a bunch of things. There's a bunch of things I've found interesting. Uh, one is like from the adoption side. So even just talking about PayPal, like most of the conversations that I've had, you know, I've been in the space for nine years. So like I've, like there are things like, okay, early like on the balance sheets of S&P 500 companies and like legal tender in a country, like that surprised me. That was like five to 10 years earlier than I expected. Same thing now where like, you know, yes, we got PayPal in the round, but we also spoke to every single consumer fintech product basically that exists, every major financial institution, like conversations that I thought were very, very clearly five to 10 years out are happening now. So I think there is this huge push broadly for like what that looks like in terms of mainstream adoption or the potential for this truly underlying, like really significant rails uh, in ways that just like people have not been thinking about or considering. Uh, and then like within the space broadly, I, I think it's exactly that in that at the end of the day, application developers want to make the application like security is a, it's a prerequisite. Everybody like it should be the base plate. Everybody needs it. Nobody should be able to do anything basically that that isn't secure. Like that should always be the prerequisite. But once you get over that, you have a system that you think meets that criteria, then everything else, like application developers want to build an application that gets used by consumers. They're very clearly optimizing for like maximum use and consumers want to use something that is like easy to use, right? And so I think people are, you have a lot of people in this space that over-engineer solutions, I feel like. Uh, I think you see it happen all, all, all the time. Um, and you have these really, really complex things that they think, you know, unlock this little bit of extra gain, but make the consumer experience like 10 times worse. Uh, and people just like aren't willing to bear that. Uh, the application developers want something. So any amount that you can add to unlocking consumer experience, any amount that you can add to like abstracting away, making the entire thing more of a, a singular system, uh, I think is just valued so, so, so highly by the developer side of things and just completely underserved. Where do you think we are in like this crypto adoption phase? Like there have been attempts to build like consumer facing applications like social and gaming. Uh, but it has always felt that like e even like Axie, unfortunate as it is, but like the Ronin hack, like feels to me like we still uh, in, are in this infrastructure layer where we a lot of very, a lot of really kind of basic stuff needs to be built first. But we're kind of trying to do this all, all at the same time. Um, you guys are obviously focused on the infrastructure layer, it sounds like, uh, or, or, or you are. Um, but I'm curious, like, where, where do you think we are in the adoption phase? And maybe if you can, like, do the analogy with the internet and how that evolved. Yeah, I mean, I think it's just, I think it's messy. I think people are running in a bunch of different directions at the same time. Like, I, so again, 16, 17 years ago, when I was working with my co-founder, when we met my co-founders, we worked in a testing and conformance lab doing like IEEE early internet technologies, right? And like, I was there writing test suites and conformance suites for some of these standards for products that were getting rolled out into every single like household in the world, every data center in the world. And the amount of times that those things were just like broken or non-conformant or uh, just like totally didn't meet the standard and we're going to be put everywhere was like, it was way, 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 way messier than people like to remember. And I think we're basically in that phase. I think we're in the phase where technologies like the technologies that unlock all this stuff are being developed and they're being developed like on the fly, like that's incrementally happening right now. It's unfolding. And I think applications are trying to run like faster than infrastructure is catching up and that introduces like up uh, yeah a lot of things are breaking a lot of things are messy but i think like the internet like it's it's all going to get consolidated it's all going to resolve like i think it's just a natural part of like massive expansion of any space and we have had you know the, the craziest expansion of anybody so talking about the internet stack like there are standards now https tcpip there's just one standard. And a lot of times people like to make that analogy and say and make the claim that there will only be one chain to rule them all, whether it's Bitcoin or Ethereum uh, or some other chain. Um, what do you? What is your response to that? What is your view in terms of uh, a multi-chain world? Yep. Uh, so I think... I think treating the chains as the standard is like not necessarily the right approach. So like early internet, right? You just had these clusters of computers that were like sitting at universities, right? The intranets, you didn't have intranets, right? So you had like these small systems of connectivity and you could do some things, but you couldn't do everything. And it wasn't until you had these standards and obviously 
run the cable and did everything to like make them connect uh, that basically everything could start talking to each other. And like, I, I think that's sort of where we're at now. Like, again, I think the chains themselves are more, if you're treating the chains like standards, the question is like, will everything live in one chain? And so you're really asking the question of like, are you going to have Ethereum with a bunch of L2s that all conform to a single set? Or are you, is there a world where we have a bunch of L1s and competing systems? Uh, and I think the chains themselves are more like programming languages than anything else. Like I, I think like that you 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 know you use C plus you use C you use CUDA when you need to you use Python or JavaScript when you can because like it's easy and it's fast to do right. And I I think it really is is more akin to like those sort of properties where like yeah I do think like I I have the personal opinion that chains that are very small iterative like shades of gray so you have like ethereum and you have something that like lives on either side it's like mostly ethereum but like a little bit more scalable a little bit more something like as technology gets better like they will have a hard time maintaining any sort of competitive advantage as ethereum scales but like chains that take very strong orthogonal trade-offs um so you're talking the solanas of the world things that are again throughput storage etc like i think those like ethereum will just never do those things as well as those chains period like it's not going to happen even ask like the most ardent supporter of their own chain like vitalik anatoly whoever like none of them believes that like their chain will just handle all scale of everything like it's just nobody has any state of belief that like that is going to be the case um and so yeah for me uh, i think it's more broadly like that like when you compare like you know uh, react or ruby or like you know whatever a bunch of similar similar constructs similar languages uh you're gonna get like one winner who like wins in this vertical. Uh, but when you have these big orthogonal trade-offs again, like you're just not doing in Python what you're doing in C++. Um, right. Yeah. Brian, Brian, what are your thoughts on the analogy to uh, different L1s being different like cloud providers, like almost like um, AWS versus Google Cloud um, versus Microsoft Azure, where like we're, we're recording this thing on Riverside. I've got like a Google doc pulled up here. I've got Telegram. I have no idea what service these things are running on in the background and that the future might look something like I have no idea if the game I'm playing is on Ethereum, Avalanche or Solana. I certainly hope that is the world that you have no idea where it is. I don't equate the chains as much like maybe right now because it's messy everybody is trying to be a cloud provider in that everybody like all the cloud services are broadly trying to do the same thing i think the end state of the chains is that all the chains are not necessarily trying to do the exact same thing but they're trying to optimize for like one thing extremely well uh so again i i, I really think about the framing and like strong orthogonal trade-offs where they're going to do this thing better than anything else um but in terms of like yeah, I mean, there's there's definitely like relationship between cloud services where like you have this yeah. thing that is running on this effectively peer to peer like system of nodes of validating nodes. Uh, so yeah, hundred percent. From a, from a use case perspective, uh, when I first heard the pitch, it was it was very much DeFi centric. I think like doing a swap uh, and that doing multiple hops. How do you? Um, I'm curious to get your take on the, I mean, you could do so many different things when you're connecting all these different chains, but where do you see most of the activity today? Where do you think it's going to happen over the next, like, you know, 12 months, um, like from a use case perspective? Uh, and what does that mean from a user? They might just like be using, you know, a wallet like Argent or whatever. Yeah. So we absolutely came with everything at like a very, very DeFi skew. There was like a couple of use cases we we're highlighting. All of them were DeFi. And then we announced and like 50% of our inbound was gaming and NFTs. This is similar, right? We launched, we launched Stargate, shoot success. But like shortly after, like Ghostly Ghost, this random NFT project launched and like sold out instantly, became the number one trading NFT on OpenSea, like immediately after. And then like a hundred other NFT projects have launched and every NFT project is basically looking at this. So there's been huge factors and the same way of TradFi interest was like not what I was expecting. But again, we're talking to every single consumer fintech and like all of these neobanks and all, just things that I did not expect to. So there are like all these different verticals that people are interested. I still think the broadest immediate unlock, like for me, the thing I'm most excited about is, and I'll go on my wrapped assets tangent now, is I, I think there are like a couple elements of just like pure, like potentially systemic risk at scale. And I think wrapped assets is one of them in that you have this construct now, which is how most bridges work. We're like, you want to bridge from chain A to chain B. 
you're going to lock some asset up and you're like mint a synthetic asset on the other chain. And like, that's just how bridging works today for 99% of bridges. And the thing that I, I really disliked about that was that if you have a huge amount of outflow, if you have a hundred billion dollars of outflow from chain A to chain B, you will lock up a hundred billion on chain A and you will mint a hundred billion of synthetic on chain B. And the problem is that you have that hundred billion of standing risk forever. Uh, that as long as that, as long as the synthetics are in circulation, you will have a hundred billion sitting in a contract that's at risk forever. Uh, so if the consensus mechanism ever breaks, if anybody can ever figure out a clever exploit at the contract level, any of these things, it's gone. So this wormhole saw this bunch of other people have seen this, right? This has happened many, many, many times before. And so that always seemed like just not a great way to do this, especially when you end up like daisy chaining bridges. So like you bridge Ethereum to Solana and then you bridge like Solana to Near, and then you bridge like Near to Binance Smart Chain and to Avalanche. And like all of a sudden you're, you're like adopting like five different bridge parameterizations of like security, right? Where like if any of them break, everything breaks. Um, and so that's just like broadly scary. But so when we made Stargate, one of the things that we did was Stargate works with you just have like two pools of native assets and you incentivize people to rebalance the pools. You add to one, subtract from the other. And so you could have in that sort of construct, you could have the same outflow of like a hundred billion dollars with simple like a hundred million dollar pools on each side. So without ever exceeding $200 million of overall risk, assuming you can re incentivize rebalancing, you can have the same exact outflow with none of the standing risk. And so like seeing people move in that direction, I think is hugely important. But what's more important is like the real question of wrapped assets is do you need it? Like, do you actually need to have Sol on Ethereum, on Phantom, on whatever. And like my argument is that you absolutely do not. Like nobody wants to have Sol on those chains. What they want is to leverage the purchasing power, the spending power of their Sol, right? They want to collateralize Sol on Solana and then like borrow against it on another chain. They want to unlock like access to capital without losing their Sol exposure. And so like I think the entire premise of wrapped assets is really silly in that you're going to take your ETH to another chain. You're going to take your Sol to another chain. Like you don't need to do that. There's no reason we need Sol pairs or Sol staking on Phantom. Like it just doesn't need to exist. Um, and so that is like the single thing I think I'm most excited about in the near term, the DeFi side of things is this cross-chain collateralization where you collateralize it rather than having wrapped assets everywhere, rather than taking your assets that aren't being used and don't have a protocol on the other chain and just like having a million assets over there. Uh, being able to collateralize and borrow against them in a way that actually makes sense. And I think there are some reasonably sized hurdles that need to get solved for that to be able to done be done like very elegantly. Uh, but I think it will be by far one of the biggest unlocks in the space. And I think it will change both the overall like surface or construction of risk in all of this and also the way that people interact with it by, by a pretty big margin. Is there an instance where I think like, uh, you know, for instance, if you want to swap um, and you want to take advantage of yield on another chain, but you have assets in Ethereum, you see a lot of activity in Avalanche. Okay, you want to swap quickly, take advantage of that. And maybe it's a quick ARB, maybe it's just a farm for a week or whatever. Um, is there a version where like that, like the cost of interacting in the system to doing that, like is is higher than the benefit of just making this like operating across multiple chains because a lot of what we've seen now is this kind of mercenary capital like rotating very quickly but these yields are getting back in the day when i was like you know yield farming like a maniac well i still do but like back, back in the day early on like early DeFi summer like you know five minute like the first five minutes the first day it was just it was it was very lucrative and you know it commensurate to the risk now it's sort of marginally just kind of come down. Like these opportunities go away really quickly. There's more capital. There's more people playing. There might be a, a state of the world where like, it's just not worth the cost, the time to, to, to hop around and do all these operations. What do you say to that? Like, do you agree with that? Do you, is that like, just not a state of the world because historically these hops haven't had been happening through layer zero. They've been happening through bridges and all these other Yankee solutions. Yeah, no, I mean, I, I think probably what you're describing is a system that like you have enough latent capital in every ecosystem to like fulfill the demands of that ecosystem, right? And so like the question is like in terms of capital efficiency, in order to have purely enough, it means it's like 
sitting there mostly inefficient and when like these high demand periods have, it's just like immediately serviceable without anything else, right? And so I think what is much more likely is that you have these systems that have broadly elastic supply and it's it's easy or seamless to like move in and out of these ecosystems or take the broad constructs of like insert stable coin here and allow that to be anywhere rather than having these isolated. Like we're going to have a billion here and 10 billion here and X billion there and like it's just going to be sitting there a billion of like inefficient capital that's like not being put to use or produced at like incredibly low yields. Uh, and then magically, like when this huge shock comes, this demand shock, and basically uh, you need to have it there. Like it's just going to have been sitting there ready and it'll get armed out immediately. Uh, like, no, I think, I think you need some system for doing that broadly. Uh, but I do think in, in with everything, like, and that's a huge interest of like the TradFi side of things. Like everybody wants to arbitrate these yields. There's not a world where I'm not sure we're going to get DeFi summer again. Where, you know, in, in 20 minutes, you're making your like six month of yield, right? Um, you know, I, I, I don't think basically like as these systems become easier and easier to, again, move this capital around, it, it will just always get armed out faster. Um, yeah. Kind of zooming out from, from layer zero, I just want to get your take on like what your, just your almost thesis for where you see like the next six to 12 months going in crypto. It, it really feels like last year was there's so much shit going on. It was like D, starting with DeFi summer in 2020. And then like we moved into like the Beeple $69 million NFT sale kicked off like a crazy just it's been like the last 18 months with NFTs have been insane. And then the metaverse narrative kind of came and went really quickly. But gaming is super hot. And so like I just want to almost ask you like what are you really excited about? Uh, kind of two questions. Like, what, what are you really excited about right now? But also, where do you see like the next six to 12 months going in crypto? Yeah, so, so I think it's been a weird period where there have been a lot of times I was excited about a lot of different things. The last like 12 to 18 months outside of the problem that we've been working on, like I, and this may be that I've been so like blinders on focused on what I'm doing, uh, but there like hasn't been anything that got me really excited. I know a lot of people I think are sharp or excited about like Celestia or Avalanche Subnet's just like the modular blockchain construct, which I think is interesting. That's a world of, you know, maybe the world develops that way. Um, I think the last thing I got reasonably excited about was was probably Bancor V3. I still haven't made it through the 70-page paper. Uh, now they've actually released the detail, but the construct of Bancor V3, especially around like the consideration of what we're doing, was broadly that you can take this system where now everything is two-sided pairs. So everything is X to ETH, whatever. And you uh, across all these chains, you have all of these two-sided pairs. You basically have all of this redundant capital use. And Bancor V3 was proposing a model where you have single-sided pools of all of these assets everywhere in like one pool of BNT that sits in the middle. And you can effectively go between them. And again, I, I still have not spent enough time going through the pure construct, but if they have created a system that prices those well and allows you to do that, then you can imagine a system where now a DEX that lives across a bunch of chains looks like single-sided asset pools everywhere. And let's say like a pool of USDC that sits in the middle, right? And like you have this single asset that's kind of the pair and pricing mechanism for all of them. And now rather than having X to USDC and Y to USDC and A to USDC and so on, you can have single-sided pool of those with a, a broad pool of USDC that lives everywhere. And you can go like X to USDC, USDC to Y, like very, very, very easily across all pairs, across all chains. Um, and so again, that is broadly what they were presenting in the early material. And I think that's still what they say they're presenting, but I have not gone through in-depth paper to do it. But that concept of like taking the DEX construct and reinventing it in such a way that you're almost like 2X more capital efficient, can deal with long tail and can have this kind of like flow between without needing to have like multiple fees of swaps. Like building something bottoms up from that, especially across a bunch of different chains, was one of the things I got like, most excited about of like i like this will be very interesting i want to see this happen it's funny you mentioned bancor because i have i have respect for the team like i think they generally have i think most people don't appreciate like deep deep cryptographers and technical people on their bench unfortunately it's sort of like the ugly duckling black horse of of crypto because they raised a big ico which other protocols did too like filecoin and Divinity, and you know like people forget but somehow the market is selective and they get a lot of criticism I've talked to the team a lot. I said, look, they're, I think the way they frame certain things, like a permanent law solution was like, you know, it didn't do them service. But I do think it's one of the more underappreciated teams out there, uh, at least in DeFi. Um, 
what is your take in, in just generally the, you've been in the space for nine years as a builder, as an investor, like, how do you think the space has changed? And like, you know, where do you kind of like, maybe just, I'm trying to get some insight from you on what are the hardest things as a builder? Because the community can be very difficult at times. Like I sympathize with founders. Like it, it could be very adversarial, not just from a, uh, there's all these hackers out there that want to break $4 billion in TBL, but it's also the community doesn't help at times. Um, what's been your experience with these communities? Yeah, I think probably like we've all watched this space change where, you know, go back to 2013 and it was only two categories. It was pure ethos and speculators. Like that was it, right? It was like people who were, were diehard, like in the ethos of Bitcoin and everything that sort of that had the potential to provide. And then there's people who were just like speculating. This is like Feathercoin and like, you know, every random thing that was coming out it was just people who were trading shit coins in the same way that they do now. Like speculators have not gone away in the space. Uh, and slowly, again, you had this like renaissance in 2016, 2017 that Ethereum brought up this entire new like pure ethos of people of like, okay, this is not just Bitcoin store value monetary. This is like you can build really interesting things. You have the ability to like do something, build systems that that broadly change things in more of the way. And you saw a sh- like a bunch of incredible things. And then especially towards like the later half of that into like 2018, just so many terrible things. So like you saw that entire cycle and then like things die and like all those people went away and you came up in like DeFi summer, same thing. Like this is incredible financial rails. And like maybe the space got ahead of itself in that like pricing everything as if it was like pure had already achieved like mass adoption, but like clearly the potential was there. And I think everybody inside the space, outside the space, like use that and recognizes the potential that all of this has. I think as a builder, the broad experience was like, even, even on the VC side of things, when we raised the round, uh, you know, people ask like, what are we going to use the money on? What are we going to do all of it? Like our focus broadly is to build period. We're not going to spend like, you know, we've raised a lot of money. We're not going to just spend the money because it's there. We loaned out all of our money at eight and a half percent. We're like, we have positive burn. We spend less in salaries. We spend less in expenses than we generate in income on the money that we have. And our goal is just to build for a very long time. It is, we're not going to be a team who like blows all the money and does all this, you know, we spent zero dollars in marketing promotioning, like none of that. So our goal is to build for like a very, very long view and build a system that scales and has absolute mass adoption. Like that is the only thing that we care about. And so, yes, when you go through the community and, um, you know, you launch something, my promise to people is that we will build and we'll build the best possible thing that we build. We'll make the most usable system and I will get as much integration adoption as we possibly can. Like that is my role, right? Build the system that is most usable and get the most use on that system. Everything else is extraneous to that. Everything else is either markets and outside of my control or like that. So when people are like, you know, on both sides of things, oh, I bought Stargate at 25 cents and now it's $4 and amazing, amazing. Or like, oh, it was $4 and now it's like $2 and something. Ah, terrible. To, you know, like that kind of stuff. There's so much noise. There's so much like everybody. You haven't spent time talking about this thing. Like you're focusing on these other things and not on this thing. Uh, you know, it's just like a constant 100 messages every day about this stuff. And as a builder, like I want to spend my time building and designing the best possible systems and getting adoption. And like, that is the thing that I'm focused on. That's what I want to do. So, so you say you solve this, this idea of interoperability, you, you can, you build this connective tissue across chains. What's next? You're going to have a war chest. You're going to have probably a lot of tokens from different protocols. You're going to have all these integrations. What do you do after that? I think for us that the pure focus now is like get adoption. Right. Like that's very clear. Like do that thing. Uh, and I think on that pathway, like the main goal is get everybody else to build on top of us and then take things like if nobody else is going to build things that we think are huge unlocks within the system, then like we will likely build some of those things. So I'm sure we will build things that are purely value additive to like the broader ecosystem. But like like the security features that you mentioned earlier. Yeah, right? like which, exactly. which that might like be a standard in of itself for other protocols. Absolutely. Um, so just a, anything like that. Um, and so after like post broad adoption, I try not to think about it too much in the same way. I try not like 
people always want to see this super long vision. And I think one of the problems with that is like when you commit to something, even if it's just in the back of your mind, you like, you have this sunk cost, you start dedicating like mental capacity and space to like, Oh, eventually we're going to do this. Eventually we're going to do this. And then like, if it gets to a point where like, maybe it's better to not do that. You feel like you've spent all this time designing and think about and doing this thing. Like you want to go down that path anyways. So for me, like I try to really keep like the broad view is connect every single contract on every chain, like period. Like that is the ultimate goal. That should be the guiding light no matter what. But like from here to there, is just like figure out what you think is the highest value thing in like some fixed time window and like focus on that thing. Um, And so I don't allocate too much time to thinking about anything else around that other than just like make the system better, get adoption for the system. Um, For all the builders out there, uh, people that are perhaps on the fence trying to find a a vector to kind of build on um, in crypto, what would be, you've done both Web 2, you've built there, you've been successful there, you've come to Web 3, it may be different in some many ways, I think the same. But like, what would be your best advice for folks that want to get involved in the space and, and come and build? I think my best advice by far is just broadly like, be interested in what you're doing, right? Like, again, like, we didn't approach this as like company, we approached it as like, we're going to build something cool that we think is interesting. We're going to get better. We're going to do that. And then like, you'll eventually find this problem that is like, you can't, you can't turn your head away from. So I think one is just like actually enjoy building, right? Like play with the technology, build contracts, deploy things, uh, build toy examples of all of this. And then the other thing I think that we've done is like, it's very, very easy. Like we've hired almost exclusively outside of the space. I think that's like not super common, um, and we're a little bit advantaged because us three founders were all like very, very native and had built a bunch of stuff in this space and that we could catch everybody else up to speed. But I think people, there's like this really insane Delta right now where you can get like, like your two options for a hire is like a kid who did a coding bootcamp and like published one solidity contract that got low to medium usage or like a distributed systems PhD who you need to like teach solidity, right? Like that, those are literally your options. Right. (laughs) And for us, we've always taken like, try to get the best possible people we could work in on the problem and then spend the extra time to get them up to speed, leverage your network, whoever else to get like, this is why we spent so much on audits is why we spent all this. We want to be working with people to say, like, here are the flows you need to be thinking about. Here are the things maybe you missed. Here's whatever. Right. So I would way rather get better engineers, get better people working on this and spend all the extra money that I would have spent on getting like insert solidity engineer X and spend it on auditors, spend it on advice from like the best people who architect and build. And like, you you look at other contracts, look at the best protocols built, like use those as sort of frames of references. Um, And I think that's a mistake I see a lot of people is like, they're gonna build a company and like, they're just pick any three. So these were like the three solidity engineers I can get. So like, I got them like, no, find the best possible engineers you can and like get them excited. So is the language mm-hmm. you can, you know, you can learn it. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. What's the best way for people to get involved? And then we'll get to like where, where they can learn about you guys. I mean, obviously we'll link in, in, in the pod and everything, but like if someone wants to get involved, wants to build, wants to tinker, like what are some of the resources? What are some of the opportunities out there for folks? Yeah. So our goal is to make it, so the docs and bottoms up experience is like by far the best in the space, right? Like we want to be the stripes in that regard in our penance right now is what I tell the team is that anybody who doesn't have that experience of just like sitting down and just like being able to build bottoms up without asking any, like with having everything presented and handheld and fed in a way that is super digestible, our penance is spending the time. So if you are building like, reach out to the team. We will help you write contracts. We will spend time with you. We will fix the docs when we find things that you didn't understand. Like until we've gotten to the point where that bottoms up process is like just unbelievably dead simple and straightforward. Like we have, I don't know, 500 telegram groups with people who are building on top of us who we will spend time building in there with you. Um, So like if you're interested in tinkering around, jump in the development channel on Discord, like play around. There's other people who who will talk to you all day on like, things they found, do this, do that. This was interesting. Look at this. Uh, and we're more than happy to jump in and like assist however we can. 
Uh, and that is exactly what I tell the team. I say, anytime somebody has a question that they cannot solve from our doc structure, like that's our penance. We spend the time, we help them, and then we go make it better. That's awesome. Well, Brian, thanks so much for coming on the show, man. I'm obviously super excited what you're building. Uh, and and I, hope, I hope this has been helpful for for folks trying to you know get an understanding of what you're building and why it's so exciting for the space, which I always like to tell people, like, again, abstracting away the complexity of of interacting with these chains. Like, no one ultimately is going to care and have a lot of uh, you know, affiliation or passion about these layer ones as we see today, it's going to be no, like just, I want to use a certain like use case. I think we're moving from this small tribalism of, of groups and clusters that have big bags and certain chains to just a more consumer mainstream centric focus of, uh, around a particular use case. And I think that's what gets really exciting that we have workable products. There's real utility in the space. It didn't exist five years ago, three years ago. Now there is, and now it's incumbent upon the community and builders in the space to just build really seamless layers of infrastructure that connect all of it and stitch it all together. And I think you guys are coming at the right time, which is super important. People ask my uh, my five to 10 year goal, like, where do I want layer zero to be? And I always say, like, my goal, like in an ideal state in five to 10 years from now, like nobody knows what layer zero is in the same way that nobody thinks about TCP IP, nobody thinks about Ethernet. Like if you take a networking class and CS degree in university, like you'll learn a little bit about it. But otherwise, like not a single person using a consumer product thinks about those technologies, but it underlies everything that we do. And I think that is the broad goal. And I think many of the layer ones like have the potential to also like if that if that level of abstraction happens, um, then it's the same. Users, users will not care. Like developers care whether you're using AWS or all of these others. They care about the tooling they're using. They care about the thing that they're doing. But end consumer doesn't ever think about it. Hey, Brown, thanks so much, man. Uh, really appreciate you coming on the pod. I know you're super busy. And so, uh, you know, we'll, we'll obviously link to, to your Twitter and Layer Zero and all the resources out there. Um, and hopefully it's a word of encouragement for everyone out there listening to, you know, check out one of the more exciting protocols in the space. Anytime, guys. Thanks so much for having me. All right. Do well, Brian. 